Today on Graceful Truth with Pastor Steve Converse. Now, when you and I are going through a storm, it may seem as if the Lord isn't aware of it. It may seem as if he's asleep, but we can be sure that he isn't because the scripture tells us that he never sleeps on us, even if it appears he's sleeping. (laughs) It's only meant to test our faith in him. And again, welcome to today's broadcast of Graceful Truth. We find ourselves once again in Matthew chapter 8, verses 23 through 27. It's a great gospel illustration of just how much our Lord really cares for us, even when it might appear from all appearances to you and I that he really doesn't. A great message in light of the current crisis we find ourselves in the middle of. Join us, won't you? Living our faith in the face of fear. Here's Pastor Steve Converse now. Well, as we look at this passage, I want to draw out just seven principles. Seven principles that will teach us about trusting our sovereign Lord during tribulations, during trials, during storms, during times in our society when people are panicking. Look at what it says in verse 23. We see the first principle. Even when we follow Jesus faithfully, this is important to understand. Unexpected storms will come. Even when we're following Jesus faithfully, when we're doing everything right, that doesn't entitle us to a cakewalk. Matthew begins by telling us, and when he got into the boat, Jesus got into the boat, his disciples followed him. I mean, this is significant. I mean, the disciples at this point in time had a rough idea, but they didn't have a profound idea of who they were following. Their faith was small, but they were following. And they had actually, listen to this, they had left their houses. They had left their families. They left their careers, their occupations, to be expressly with the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, we're quick to criticize them in this situation. But they've already done a lot more than we will probably ever do in following Christ. The disciples had much to learn about what being a disciple meant but they had heard Jesus' call, make no doubt. See, a disciple is someone who follows Christ, leaves everything and follows him. It means you go where he says to go, you do what he says to do, and you believe what he says to believe. We don't have the privilege of doing our own thing. So many times people say, well, don't you think we have a free will? I don't. The Bible describes us as slaves to sin before we came to Christ, does it not? That doesn't seem real free. (laughs) And after we come to Christ, what are we called? We're called slaves to Christ. We're called to serve him, to follow him. Remember the Sermon on the Mount, the message of salvation, all those disciples were gathered on that mountain to hear Jesus talk. They saw some of his miracles, and they thought, you know, we're going to go check this guy out. Now, some of these disciples weren't true disciples. They were false disciples. Even those among the 12, there was one who was a false disciple. The men of Jesus' inner circle are often referred to as disciples, yet Judas himself was what? One who betrayed the Lord. He was an unbeliever. MacArthur points out four categories of disciples. The broadest group were the curious. 
those who followed Jesus for a while simply to find out what he was like. If you hang around church for any length of time, you see people like that all the time. They come to your church, roll up their sleeves, they want to get involved. They're not here for a long time commitment. You, you know that. They're just curious. They're fascinated. They're intrigued. People back then were intrigued with what Jesus said. They were intrigued with what Jesus did. But you know what? They would not surrender to him as Lord and Savior. They were a false disciple. In John 6, it says, Truly, truly, Jesus says, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. Many, therefore, of his disciples, his followers, when they heard this, said, This is a difficult statement. They didn't understand what he was saying. Who can listen to it? And then it gives the result. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. So you have people who are curious. Secondly, you have people who are intellectually convinced of who Jesus is, of his divine message, of his power. In John chapter 3, verse 2, it says, Nicodemus came to Jesus at night and he said, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher. We know, I know this with my intellect. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. But at that point, he was not yet committed to Christ. The Lord went on to point out Nicodemus was not born again and consequently had no spiritual relationship to God. He had no participation in God's kingdom. He had no right to eternal life. So you can be curious, you can be convinced, but there's also a third category. He calls it secret believers. I call it clandestine believers. Joseph of Arimathea. And we know that because he asked Pilate for permission to bury Jesus in his own tomb and thereby proclaim his allegiance to the Savior. Up to that point, we didn't, he wasn't out proclaiming anything. He's kind of a secret follower. And the fourth category, MacArthur points out, are those who are genuine, those true and open believers. They're, they're publicly and permanently committed to Christ Jesus. Doesn't matter what people think. Doesn't matter what comes down the pike, suffering, whatever. They're going to stick to that commitment to Christ. And that's what a disciple is. A disciple basically means that you follow Jesus wherever he goes. So here's their disciples. Back to Matthew. They're following Jesus. And when he got into the boat, what does it say his disciples did? They followed him. They followed him. You think, wow, they would get rewarded for this. This is a good thing. Well, look at what verse 24 says. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea so that the boat was being swamped. That means it was being filled overwhelmingly by waves, by water. The end of the verse says, but he was asleep. Jesus was asleep. Now, we're not talking a luxury cruise liner here. You know, we're not even talking a yacht. We're talking a simple little boat, a fishing vessel. I mean, this is a very remarkable storm that hit the sea. The Greek word that Matthew uses here to describe this is seismos. You know, you think of an earthquake, right? That's what it means, a shaking or a quaking. Luke tells us that this was a product of a great wind that suddenly came down upon the lake. This happens over there all the time. And these experienced fishermen ordinarily would have been able to tell in advance that this windstorm was coming. But this one, it says, was unexpected. You know, just like Jesus said, be calm, I think before he went to sleep, he said, okay, let's turn it up. (laughs) Because it was so sudden. It was unexpected. 
What we're told is it came suddenly. It's described as great. I mean, if they were such great fishermen and they knew it was coming, why would they go out on a fishing boat with Jesus? Why wouldn't they say, hey, uh, Lord, you know, look at these waves and stuff. It's not good. We shouldn't go out there. Any experienced sailor would know that. But this one was unexpected. It was so threatening that we're told that the boat was swamped or covered by waves. I remember one time I was going down the Loyal Sock Creek in our canoe with some friends. Summer, we always did this. And you'd usually come to this path, a break, and part of the stream went this way and part of the stream went that way. And usually you would go the more calm route. Well, my friends and I were <laughs> kind of stupid. We thought, let's take that way. Look at that. It looks, it's going fast. What fun. Well, you know what happened. The canoe tipped over, lost our lunch. It lost everything. I remember that boat filling up, that canoe filling up with water. And just, we just tipped over. And it wasn't like this. But it was scary. It was scary. This is what was in their hearts, fear. When the Gospel of Mark, he tells the same story. He says, that the boat was already filling. Their boat was filled up. The men in the boat were certain that they were going to die. So much so that they cried out because they thought they were going to perish. That's another word for die. (laughs) And here perhaps is the most remarkable thing about this storm. It came when they were in the course of simply, what? Following Jesus. They were simply following Jesus. They didn't do anything wrong. It wasn't like the story of Jonah. They were doing the right thing. They were obeying the Son of God. And yet this violent, life-threatening storm fell upon them anyway. I mean, here is this spiritual lesson for us to discern. We should never think that just because we're following Jesus, we have a right to expect to be exempt from the storms of life. Those storms may and those storms will come, even though we are following Jesus faithfully. I mean, Jesus... Could have prevented this storm from coming. He could have done that. He had the power to do that. But he didn't see fit to do so. But his disciples were following him. And what did he do? He led them right into a storm. Question, why would Jesus do this? See, we need to keep in mind that Jesus has greater things in mind for those who are following him. Greater things than they have for themselves. See, we have it in our minds, especially in America as Christians, that we ought to have a comfortable ride when we follow Jesus. It should be a rose garden. Everything should be hokey-dokey. Everything should be fine. Happy, happy in Jesus. See, but Christ knows that as his followers in training learned here, we need to get caught in some storms now and then. Why? So we can learn some new truth about the Jesus that we claim to be following in an experiential way. And you know what? He knows just the right time for us to enter into a storm. And he knows just what we need to learn from that storm in order to trust him even more. James chapter 1 verses 2 to 4 tells us, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various trials of different kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces what? Steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect, that you may be complete, lacking in nothing. So the first principle, learn to expect as you follow Jesus, the storms will come. They come for a very good purpose, but trust me, they will come. They will come so that we will learn something new about our 
great Savior's love and power toward us. Well, this brings us to the second principle, verse 24. Though it seems as if the Lord is asleep during the storm, he's still present. He's still present. Verse 24, and behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being filled by water, by the waves, but he, Jesus, was asleep. Matthew makes Jesus stand out in stark contrast to all the panic that's going on around him. Matthew writes, but he was asleep. In the original language, Matthew even puts it more emphatic. Literally, the original language says, but he, he was asleep. (laughs) You can see the disciples. Yeah, there was Jesus sleeping. We're thinking we're going to die. Paints a perfect picture for us, though, because I believe our God has a great sense of humor, don't you? I mean, how can Jesus sleep at a time like this? Well, for one reason, he was tired. He was tired. He was exhausted. He was bone weary. He was ministering to all these people constantly. Finally, gets in the boat and he just crashes. He slept so soundly that not even the tossing of the boat, the noise of the wind or the blowing water hitting his face awakened him. He was out. I don't know if Jesus snored, but maybe he was snoring. He was soaked to the skin while lying on hard planks with only a cushion for his head, Mark tells us. And he was out. But there was another reason, a much more profound reason. It was because he wasn't in a panic. He wasn't in a panic over the circumstances like so many times we are. See, this was all part of his great divine plan. The storm was howling, the wind, the waves were blowing about. The water was filling the boat, tossing it to and fro like a little cork. And all the while, the creator of the world slept soundly in the midst of it all. Even though in his divinity he was omniscient, in his humanness, he was at this time oblivious to the turmoil that surrounded him, where he wouldn't be sleeping. He was at perfect peace in the midst of this storm because he knew that the storm, listen, he knew the storm was under his control at all times. He's sovereign. He's in control of everything. He was in his father's will, and he knew that no matter what else happened around him, his father's will would still be fulfilled in him. He had no reason to be afraid, hence him being asleep in the midst of a storm in a small boat. As long as he was in the boat, guess what? The disciples had no reason to be afraid either. I mean, the Son of God is in the boat with you. Now, when you and I are going through a storm, it may seem as if the Lord isn't aware of it. Like we have to inform God. Lord, you don't know what's going on in my life right now, so I'm just going to tell you. We call that a prayer time. It really is a gripe time. We're just griping, you know, why is this happening to me? Why is all? As if God doesn't already know. It may seem as if he's asleep, but we can be sure that he isn't. Because the scripture tells us that he never sleeps on us, even if it appears he's sleeping. <laughs> it's only meant to test our faith in him. Psalm 121 verse 3 and 4 says, He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. When you're in the midst of the storm, just remember, Jesus, if you're a follower of him, is there too, with you, in the midst of the storm. I mean, maybe his apparent silence seems to you that he's not there, but that's just meant to see if you will trust him and have confidence in him. Did you know that he offers you peace through the storms of life, Christ, throughout his word? John 14, 27, listen, peace I leave you, my peace I give you. Not as the world gives, do I give to you. Then he says this, let not your hearts be troubled. 
neither let it be afraid or fearful. He says in John 16, these things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have, what? Peace. In the world you have tribulation, you have trials, you have all sorts of things, you have viruses, but be of good cheer. <laughs> I have overcome the world. See, we can be confident that Jesus, who experienced perfect peace in the presence of this storm, is always with us in the storms that we encounter. He offers us that perfect peace. He offers his own perfect peace in our storm if we just accept it. So the storms will come, but Jesus is with us in them. The thirdly, we do the best thing we can do during a storm when we cry out to Jesus. Verse 25, and they went and they woke him saying, save us, Lord, we're perishing. I mean, the disciples certainly did the best thing they could. I mean, these are seasoned fishermen, seasoned sailors. They didn't know what to do in this situation. They did the only thing they could do. They cried out to Christ. They cried out to Jesus. They woke him from his sleep. Matthew tells us that they cried out to him, Lord, save us, we are perishing. In the original Greek language, this, this very crucial prayer, it's only three words in length. It's only three words. Literally, it's translated this way. Lord, save, we perish. <laughs> That's what they're saying. They didn't have time for anything else in their minds. It gets right to the point. By the way, it's a fantastic prayer. It's a fantastic prayer. Analyze it with me. The word Lord. We see that they knew who to go to. And they also had the manner of reverence they should as they approached him. They didn't walk up to Jesus who's sleeping in the boat and kick him and say, Hey, you, get up. We're perishing. They said, Lord. In that first word, they recognized and admitted his authority, his power to deal with the situation. Why? Because they, they saw his power and authority on display. To call him Lord in this case was to confess his deity. Really, they're saying, God, help us. The second word there, save, not only did they know who to go to, but they knew what they needed. See, there's a lot of people that come to God, but they don't know what they need. They cried out, save. Why? Because they needed to be rescued. They needed to be saved. They laid out their need before their Lord because they knew if he didn't intercede, they would, the third word there, perish. They stated their situation correctly. They rightly understood how hopeless they were unless, unless they, they did what he told them to do. They cried out to him. In their mind, if he didn't help them at this point, they were lost. They were going to die. I mean, this is really a great, if you want to call it a sinner's prayer, Lord, save or I'm going to die for all eternity. Lord, save me, I perish. So you can't be saved unless you admit a need. You can't be saved unless you cry out to him as Lord and plead with him to save you. But this also happens to be a perfect prayer to pray in the midst of a storm. We're in the midst of the storms of life. The perfect thing to do is to cry out to Christ. So many times, he's the last one we cry out to. I know many people dealing with different things in their life, whether it be relations or finances, whatever. And what do they do? They go to all the experts on all the books counseling books, all this stuff. And Christ is saying, just cry out to me. I, I am the one that can deal with your situation more than anyone else. The perfect thing to do is to cry out to Jesus. We must, as it were, awaken him with our prayers. And it doesn't have to be some detailed prayer or flowerly prayer. Lord, save or I perish. See, Jesus isn't interested in our creative speaking abilities. What he wants from us is our hearts. And when he has our hearts, expressed in our crying out to him in prayer in a time of trial, guess what? He responds. 
I think that's why one of the reasons why our government authorities ask for a day of prayer. Because I think they're at their wit's end. But it's not by mistake. Think about it. The most powerful man in the world states, you know what? We just have to pray. (laughs) Doesn't even matter what his own personal faith is. Who cares? He's pointing in the right direction. He's saying, we don't got this. We need some divine intervention here. Psalm 50 verse 15 says, call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. How do you respond in the day of trouble? Do you worry? Do you fret? Or are you quick to go to your knees and cry out to God? Fourth principle, before Jesus rebukes the storm, he may first wish to rebuke our lack of faith. We forget this, but it's so true. Verse 26, and he said to them, why are you afraid? Oh, you of little faith. Notice he just didn't wake up home. Oh, wow, yeah, yeah, be calm. No, he didn't do that. He let the storm rage for a couple minutes as he lectured them on their lack of faith and their fear. It says, then he arose and he rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. See, Matthew tells us that Jesus awoke in response to their cry. Their cry for what? Their cry for help. But he tells us before he rebuked the winds and the waves, he rebuked his own disciples. What does that say about their condition? Well, Jesus says that they're fearful. Are you fearful? As you look around at what's going on around us, you probably weren't too fearful six months ago when you logged on to your account and looked at your IRA growing, growing. Wow, this is great. Look at the economy. Everything's going great. Well, now everything's, the bottom's falling out. A little bit of fear there. A little bit of question mark. What's going on? What's interesting here is this Greek word. It's not the normal word for fear, which is phobos. That's not the word he uses here. This word means timid or cowardly. It suggests a kind of fearfulness that is unbecoming, a kind of fearfulness that is inappropriate, that is even at times sinful. The only other occasion that this word is used in the original language is in Revelation 21.8. And in Revelation 21.8, we're told, the cowardly shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone. Same word. It's the only other place it's found in the New Testament. And look at what Jesus says about the cause of their sinful condition. He says, the reason you're in a sinful state is because you have little faith. He calls them, oh, you of little faith. See, their real problem was being shown up by the storm. And the real problem was their lack of faith in Christ. All that they had seen of him, all the miracles, all the incredible things that he had done, it hadn't sunk into the heart level with them yet. They saw it with their eyes. They maybe not understood it with their mind, but it was in their intellect. They could tell you what Jesus had done. The people had healed the miracles that he had performed, but it didn't sink to their hearts yet. They didn't really understand who he was and how because of who he was and because of the fact that he was with them, that they had absolutely no reason to be afraid. I read this last week of a seminary student in a preaching class as he was preaching through this passage. He told the class that the man who is asleep in the boat with them was none other than the son of God. And no matter what else might have happened because of the storm, that boat was definitely not going to go down. Period. In his message, he said this, if the disciples had just relaxed, they could have enjoyed the ride of their lives. Think about that. See, I believe that's a great way to describe each one of us in our own walk through life with Christ. Sometimes we just need to relax and enjoy the ride of our lives. Even when we follow Jesus faithfully, unexpected storms will always be around. But 
we do serve the author and finisher of our faith and all that we know and see that is tangibly in front of us, the God of this universe. We are out of time today. We'll close out our program here and remind you that, as always, you're welcome to reach out to us either through our website or by simply giving us a call here at Graceful Truth. The easiest way to get in touch with us would, of course, be through our website, gracefultruth.org. That's gracefultruth.org. Always reach out to us by phone, if you wish, at 650-366-9923. That's 650-366-9923. You can also download our app. Simply Google Grace Bible Church Redwood City or Follow the link off of our website, gracefultruth.org. As these are uncertain times, and we find ourselves wondering just what kind of freedoms to expect, tomorrow we would invite you to visit our website, gracefultruth.org. It's there that you'll be able to learn about the updates when we will get together as a congregation here at Grace Bible Church in Redwood City and what we'll be doing in the meantime. Again, you'll find that information at gracefultruth.org or gracebibleonline.org. Either one of those websites will provide you with the added resources to continue to feed your soul during these challenging times. And in the meantime, would you continue to pray, not only for us, but other churches here in the Bay Area, and pray that we would find ourselves in every opportunity giving an answer for the hope that lies within us in these seemingly hopeless times. Thank you again for spending time with us here on Graceful Truth. And until next week, God bless. Graceful Truth is the ministry of Grace Bible Church in Redwood City.